This is a Hoff Studios podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, Vanessa Scotto. How are you well, this morning? Hello, Danielle Bigby. I'm so excited to be with you. I'm so excited to be with you. This has been a long time coming. I've been talking about starting a podcast for at least a year and a half that you know of. That's right. We are here. We are so here. I'm, I'm really excited to have you on because I've known you for almost 10 years, I think. And you have, I've always admired you so much. In fact, I think I wanted to be you when I met you. I was like, maybe I'll go get my Chinese medicine um, certification or master's or whatever. I was not schooled enough for that though. Um, and I was not dedicated enough to go back to school for that. Um, but I really admired your work, what you do, what you stand for. So it's really exciting to share you with my world, with my audience and to just sit down and have a little intimate conversation. Oh my gosh, this is going to be fun. I'm really happy for you. Thank you. So you have, I know personally, your breadth of work, your body of work, because I had the intimate opportunity to work with you behind the scenes on your brand. And it is astounding. You have two master's degrees, one in traditional Chinese medicine, herbs and acupuncture, and transpersonal psychology. You've lived in seven cities, traveled all over the world. You've studied Reiki, acupuncture, herbal medicine, manifestation, energy work, Buddhism, Tantra, Taoism, psychology, and meditation. In fact, you helped assist in giving me my first kundalini rising in meditation. Do you remember that? I was like, Gosh, my spine no. was tingling and I was whirling around. <laughs> it was so cool. It's the best, actually. It's so fun. It is the best. But you are so studied and you've been working in this field for 25 years. So it's really exciting because I think a lot of people who follow me are really interested in different healing modalities or are practitioners in their own ways, either coaches, healers, yoga teachers, Reiki masters, etc. So I think this conversation is going to really benefit the masses in so many ways. Amazing. I can't um, wait to see where we go. I can't wait to see where we go either. <laughs> I have so many ideas. It's interesting because when I first started working with you on a one-on-one -on -one level myself, I came to you about a year and a half, two years ago. And I was in this really disconnected place where I felt like I had been so many things. And I think people out there can really resonate, especially as women, people who pivoted in their careers or had to change careers. If you're a mom, or just if you're a human who has reinvented yourself or recreated yourself through conscious healing through um, transformation, especially, you know that you want to pivot, change, reinvent yourself. That's the name of this podcast, Rebellious Reinvention. But oftentimes, and what I'm here to do is break the stigma of shame, but oftentimes you're left with feelings of disconnection and shame. And what I was personally experiencing was compartmentalization. And I remember saying to you on one of the first calls, I was like, I feel like I've been this, and then I've been this, and then I've been this, and they're all thrown about all over the place, and I know where I want to go, and I have no idea how to put these pieces together mm -hmm. and feel whole again. And mm -hmm. so can you walk me, just walk us through what that experience is, what I was feeling, and what people may be experiencing if they're feeling those same, same sort of sensations. Mm -hmm. Probably the easiest way to describe it, because I'm sure there's multiple viewpoints that we could hold that through. But for me, um, 
I tend to look at things through the lens of parts psychology, P-A-R-T-S, parts psychology. Uh, if you've never heard of that, maybe you've heard of inner child work, which is a form of parts psychology. But one of the ways we can think about it is trauma, which many of us have had adverse childhood experiences, either what they call developmental trauma or capital T trauma. We could even look at as, uh, our culture as trauma, if you're listening in the United States. So trauma creates a kind of fragmentation within us. I, I almost picture it like something kind of breaks and all of these parts of us kind of fragment off in different directions. We can lose touch with our essential self um, as we're starting to learn to cope and adapt with our environment. Who do they want us to be? What would be safe? What would make me a good person? What would make people love me? And that's quite natural, actually. I mean, Don Miguel Ruiz calls it domestication, right? Society kind of mm -hmm. domesticates us. It says, I like this. I don't like that. This is good. This is bad. But in that journey, we can lose touch with some of our own essential nature, who we really are, who we're meant to be, in favor of these sort of, um, well, idealized visions of who we should be. So it's, it's almost as if parts of us just kind of split off and they get frozen in time sometimes, depending mm -hmm. on when they arose and what their motivations were. And what's interesting is they're not always having conversations with each other. You know, I'm sure with you, Danielle, I said this because I say it to almost everyone. The way I think of parts is like, it's like I picture this giant school bus with all of these different parts of us, which most of them are parts of us, right? They, they're mm -hmm. little aspects of who we are. But our decisions and our feelings and our drivers in any moment can be based on which part of us is driving the bus. Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, the least mature, least healthy part of us can be driving the bus, which is why we want to make the unconscious conscious. But over time, if we become aware of all of this, we have hope. I mean, it is a given that these parts can come into relationship and we can come into loving, accepting relationship with them. And as that happens, we begin to feel ourselves as integrated. And then mm -hmm. the description is we might say, I feel whole or I feel real or I feel present. Mm-hmm. And how, what does it mean? What does the essential self mean? Because I think a lot of times in this spiritual journey, especially in this age with personal development and self-help and spiritualism, as we know it today in modern society, there's always this sense of your truest self is attached to your purpose. Mm -hmm. And when we say purpose, it's oftentimes um, in context of your career and who, what you're here to do in the world, the action, which mm -hmm. leads to outside validation. So what I was experiencing kind of reached its climax for me when I was mostly being a mom, right? That was my number one priority. And so I no longer felt in quote unquote, my purpose because I had described it on paper. The idealism was that it was the way that I served the world, not just served my home or my child or myself. So what, how do we know the difference between what is our essential self and what is our purpose in the world? Mm, it's such a great question. You know, I love this question because I actually <laughs> have a lot of opinions on it. I think Look, everybody has a different view on reality. My particular view on reality comes from all of the things you described that I've studied 25 years, uh, my age, right? I'm, I'm 48 years old. Uh, I've been down the block and I, my views changed over time as it's matured. So I used to as well think of essential self as purpose. My purpose was to help people. And it's not that that's exactly wrong. I just think that it's not complete enough, right? Mm -hmm. Because that is true for some people. But my sense is just to bring it to the conversation of purpose, and then we'll get a little more specific to essential self. My sense of purpose is at this point, much, much broader and larger. I look at purpose essentially as um, the dharmic path we walk 
to become more fully ourselves, to evolve <clears throat> as human beings. And that can so be it's, through it's literally parenting. the journey and the evolution. It's yeah. not a destination. It's simply the, the evolution experience. of the soul. Exactly. Oh, I, I, which then so it's, it's such a relief to look at it that way too. I find it relieving too. I find generally, you know, something is closer to truth when it gives you an exhale, even if it might be a hard, uh, a hard understanding. So for example, someone mm -hmm. out there who has made their whole life about purpose and helping people, this may not be something that interests them, but there's a kind of exhale that says, ah, maybe my life is flowing exactly how it should be flowing. Maybe I am on my path and things are all well and good, even if my life doesn't look like what I think it should look like. To me, that's incredibly relieving. I mean, it's a, just a relief to me this morning to be reminded of that, just to get here to this moment with the chaotic circumstances of being sick all last week and healing and Gabe as well and the stress and pressures of co-parenting under one roof, but like co-parenting because one, one has been sick and one has not. And we've like toggled back and forth just to arrive in this moment to be here with you was a feat. <laughs> and so, and I was even having this conversation with my friend just an hour ago, like, is there a purpose for me fighting so hard for this podcast, for these moments for, of, for, for me, for myself, for my own desires. And, you know, obviously we came to the conclusion and I came to the conclusion and I took a deep breath that yes, there's, it's worth it. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm worth it. My desires are worthy of it. Mm -hmm. um, but even further as we uncovered through the conversation was like, there's a purpose to even all the pain and discomfort that we're, I'm experiencing arriving to this moment, mm -hmm. having to, you know, get through the discomfort of a time organization with my partner, who's also extremely busy, his priorities, my priorities, what is, how does that evolve our relationship? Right. Mm -hmm. And so taking a deeper look at it like that, instead of black or white, like, should I do this or not? Mm -hmm. Or what is this experience going to look like? What does it get to look like? What do we sure. get to learn from this? So sure. really it can be a relief. hard pill to swallow. <laughs> I mean, life can be, I know life is beautiful and it can be incredibly difficult. I think all of us can relate to that as people. And of course, as you know, people who've lived through the last few years on this planet, it can be extremely difficult. And sort of a hard pill to swallow to align with the reality that suffering is a part of the journey. It's not the mm -hmm. only part of the journey. It's not even the more important part of the journey. Um, but as we evolve in consciousness, suffering seems to be a very common avenue for us mm -hmm. to up-level and become more fully who we are. It's why I always um, define resilience as the the knowing that we'll only ever become more of ourselves, not less, mm. more of ourselves, not less. If we can come to trust that within ourselves, then we can face all of the ups and downs of life in a different way because that becomes sort of an anchor. And, mm -hmm. you know, I want to circle back to essential self because mm -hmm. one of the mistakes we keep making, you know, when you, when you look at life from a psychological view, identity is very important. It's very relevant, you know, to how we experience ourselves and our world. When you look from a spiritual point of view, most spiritual traditions are supporting you in um, experiencing yourself beyond your identity. So yeah. if your purpose becomes only the thing you do in the world is your career, you can run into certain kind of dead ends. So think, for example, someone like Ramdas. Ramdas was this beautifully articulate spiritual teacher. I mean, the, the gift he had with his words was beyond most people. And then he suffers from a stroke and he really can't speak at the same level, not even close mm. any longer right? Until he passed mm -hmm. away. 
So if Ramdas confused his ability to articulate his words so perfectly with who he was, with his mm-hmm. essential nature, he would have really gone into something like a dark night of the soul or into states mm-hmm. of despair, which are fine because they can also lead us home. But what is home? Home is resting in that true nature, which really is experienced beyond identity, beyond what we do, beyond um, who loves us, beyond mm-hmm. the behaviors we choose. Powerful. That's so powerful. I want to kind of change courses because we were chatting just a few days ago and we were ta- I was I know Mario, Vanessa's husband, who I adore dearly. And um and like speaking of relationships, <laughs> you know, um Mario and you on the surface, your identity appear as quite opposite. He's very outgoing, he's an extrovert. You're more of an introvert. You like a lot more alone time. In fact, I've seen Mario out and about. I've gone paddle boarding. I'm always like, where's Vanessa? He's like, oh, she's meditating or, oh, she's with clients or she's studying or she's writing. And when I first met you, I was, you know, I was in my late 20s. And to me, I thought that was very odd. I also wasn't in as stable of a relationship I'm in now. And we very much do our own different things throughout the day. And he's out and about, he owns bars and restaurants. So I'm sure many people see him out and think the same thing who are not in really um, conscious relationships. And so can you just share a little bit about what it's like to be in a conscious relationship where you have different needs and desires, especially, you know, as Blanket, as we could say, like introvert and extrovert. Um, On the surface, you appear so opposite. Oh, we are so opposite, (laughs) except for at a values level, right? Which which I do think is important that you have similar values in life, similar points of integrity, right? Mm -hmm. But so this is my second marriage. My first marriage, my ex-husband's a great guy. We're still dear friends. We had a lot more in common you know, he was a spiritual guy. He was older than me. He introduced me to meditation and Taoism. We were both Chinese medicine doctors. So we would go to Mm. China and work together. So we really had that very similar relationship that so many people seek, right? I, I see a lot of clients and the number of spiritual people who are seeking someone who believes what they believe is, it's pretty much the dominant thread, right? Yeah. So Mario, I knew since high school, we were always 100% different. And let's tell everybody where you're from. So I'm from Queens. I'm from Queens, New York. And I met Mario, Mario (laughs) in high school. And from the second we met, you know, I was like the artsy, the nature girl, believing in spirituality. And he was like, I want to be on Wall Street, Republican, hardworking. He's not Republican anymore. Life changes us sometimes. But whatever it is, we were so on Wall Street, though. He was was on Wall Street. He was a serious guy. Yeah, most of his career. And as you say, he's extremely extroverted. By the way, he has zero interest in spirituality. Um, He never goes on meditation retreats with me. And Danielle, I mean, you're so right to the point where I laugh. I'm like, you have a completely different life than me. Like we have obviously most of our time spent together, but our lives are different. If I go on a meditation retreat, he will take the opportunity to go to New York, see his friends, party all weekend, I'll be out till four in the- Miami. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and we're both very happy. What, what I found is I actually feel very relieved with this. For me, actually, it's easier than my first relationship. And that can be for multiple reasons. But what I found was important for me was not that we have these things in common. That's what friends are for. Right? That's what mm-hmm. my own studies are for. Um, it's that he respects and appreciates who I am and what I do with mm-hmm. the utmost. And he has distinct reverence. He's completely supportive. If I wanted to go meditate for a year in a monastery, he would say, you must then. And that is all to me that really mattered. Mm-hmm. And how do you establish the trust when you're living such different lifestyles? Well, gosh, you know, I've had many 
occasions. For example, if you think of trust in relationships, you often think of betrayals and people cheating on you and what's it like? Like, will you grow apart if you live such different lifestyles or will they be tempted? Um, I've been cheated on so many times in relationships that I, that I think ran in my family. And so I kind of magnetized quite a bit of that into my reality. Mm. And, you know, I just realized at a certain point, you really can't control that. I mean, what I learned in my first marriage, I had a lot of anxiety just as a human. And I certainly had a lot of anxiety in my relationship. And I was trying so hard to manage it and to make it just right and to set it up so that I wouldn't get hurt and we wouldn't end up fighting all the time. You know, I was just working overtime to try to make the relationship something. And, you know, I failed. And not only did I fail, I feel like I almost messed it up more by bringing so much projection and fear and management into the relationship. So after that experience, I realized, you know, marriage or relationship, partnership, whatever is your preference, it's, it doesn't serve it to make it smaller based on your fears. It doesn't serve us or our partners or our relationship to keep trying to manage them into a more palatable version of themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, as long as they're not abusive or as long as your values aren't clashing, you know, as long as they're meeting your needs, of course. But, you know, I feel that our highest evolution in a partnership level is learning to hold more so that Mm -hmm. they can always be more of themselves not less. So I just came to see like, you can't control it anyway. I mean, I know people who were going out on their lunch break and having affairs. What's the difference, right? Mm -hmm. Let's try to live a life where we could be more and then trust that if something unfortunate did come to pass, I'll handle it and I'll handle it when it happens. Yeah. I really resonate with that because it's like I was in two different relationships with Gabe. There was like Gabe and I before, and then Gabe and I after, Mm -hmm. and it was two very distinct relationships. It was a, we were in a two year toxic cycle, um, where we would break up, get back together, see other people in between, cheat on each other, break up, get back together. See, it was like over and over for almost two years or more. And we finally went to, um, a conscious uncoupling therapist or what I perceived her to be was a conscious uncoupling therapist. And I went and I said, can you just help us like not be obsessed with each other so we can finally break up. (laughs) And I really, I knew that we were addicted to the cycle of fighting and it was a daily situation and the anxiety was super high. And, um, I said, if maybe if we can just become non-attached to this addictive behavior, we can let ourselves go on and live separate lives because I'm more concerned with him moving on with somebody else than I am actually like being happy together. It's clear because we're not happy. And it was the, it was through that letting go of the fighting on a daily basis, releasing that addiction to that heightened state of emotion and healing my internal anxiety and building a bridge of trust really within myself that I didn't have to go looking if he or I were going to cheat, I would be fully prepared to handle it. I would know what to do because I'm now distinct on what I'd like from this point forward. There is no moving back. I've drawn the line. And even now we've grown to a place where if he cheated tomorrow, I think the conversation would be different. It wouldn't be black and white, but we've grown a deeper love Mm -hmm. and admiration for each other. And we have much more to lose. Mm-hmm. then we share so much together now. But um, there was kind of this benevolence to the outcome, which before everything was attached to controlling the narrative, controlling the outcome. And so as soon as I let go of where we were going to end up, whether it was breaking up or staying together, and this perceived clean relationship of non-cheating, which was so I was so tightly wound around, um, it was finally a place where I could heal. I could have trust. He could have trust and he could heal because the truth was he didn't trust me. How could he trust me? I was prying in on him, controlling every aspect of who he could be. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was this beautiful healing journey of 
really, it wasn't even that long. It was probably a four to six month period. Mm-hmm. And then our relationship completely changed. And then I got pregnant with Samaya. And luckily we had an entire year of him not working because we were living in LA. He was opening Broken Shaker. And you were, you know, you met us out there once. Yeah, I remember all of this. We were in Malibu life. Um, He was was working, but mostly from conference calls because Mm -hmm. they weren't, the new Broken Shaker was delayed by an entire nine months. They opened the Broken Shaker, this new property, the week I gave birth. So we had Mm -hmm. those nine months to really bond in that healing. Um, But yeah, the the power of benevolence is Mm -hmm. so... It's just so powerful. It's such a palette for growth, for healing, for possibility, right? You're, I mean, you're lucky you had that experience and that you could turn it around within the same relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I, I couldn't fix it in one relationship, but I learned from it and I brought it into the other relationship. Yeah. And I think it's just very common. We mistakenly grow up with these models of love, right? I mean, our mm-hmm. earliest models of love are based on what we observe in our families. And then, you know, whoever's directly around us, if it's mm-hmm. church or culture, whatever it is. So we get the idea that controlling is part of love Mm -hmm. that managing people or uh, mistrusting them or chiding them or that people's jobs are to do what we need or make us happy or not scare us or not Mm -hmm. make us anxious. So, you know, this is very common, but I think most people listening, if, if you're empathic or a sensitive soul, you're also aware of managing people can be exhausting because we're doing it a lot. You know, we don't want to talk about a certain thing. It's too scary. We don't want low vibes. We we only want high vibes. We are afraid of conflict, disappointing people. You know, all of these different things that we could be carrying with us as burdens. It makes life less beautiful, less pleasurable. And ultimately, what we want is to be able to trust in our capacity to ride these waves that are always going to keep coming. And then we don't have to have as much anticipatory anxiety and we don't have to subconsciously employ all of these management tools to try Mm -hmm. to control outcomes because we know that we'll just deal with whatever comes our way and we'll be okay. And in fact, we'll be more, not less. And so I was listening to one of your, well, I listened to one of your podcasts called Um, when the rules don't apply and you were Mm -hmm. talking about this idea of, you know, when you first started dating Mario, that you had already had a rule that you had created that you wanted to marry or you wanted to be with somebody. You would only be with somebody and you only really pursue the relationship if they wanted marriage as much or more than you did, because in your last relationship, you were accused of pushing for marriage and pushing Mm -hmm. into marriage. Right. And I can really resonate with that because that was also a thing with Gabe. And I was like, yeah, you better want marriage. You better want it now. And you better want to marry me. (laughs) Like from the moment I met him, it was wild. And, um, a part of that healing process with Gabe and I healing that trust was, and you said the phrase like slowing down and being present to what is. And I feel like that's so much of this process, whether it's in, uh, personal relationship or in your career or in any moment in life of transition and desire to like acquire, um, it really is what creates anxiety. So what is that process? What does it mean to slow down and be present to what is Mm. like, how do we do that? That was so, Mm. it was truly, I mean, that was like a probably six months to a year journey to like it was like training, riding a horse. Like I didn't understand it. I got back up. I got bucked off. I didn't like, it was just really rigorous for me Mm -hmm. learning that. Mm -hmm. And I understood exactly what you meant for, but for those of you, but for those people listening who have that anxiety and have those, that desire to control and they immediately flash forward, how do they slow down? And what does that mean? I do think it can be a journey to get there because, you know, we're talking about something profound Mm -hmm. and we could see it as relative, you know, that we can keep growing in this capacity. Um, So you may be able to do it a little today and then a lot tomorrow. But what we're talking about is the capacity to meet life exactly as it is, Mm -hmm. not based on your projections, your stories, 
your future-based anxiety, neither based on fantasy, where you're ignoring reality and the, the most likely consequences of your choices. I mean, I think most of us, the dilemma we face is our defense mechanisms um, alternate between either being really afraid, really anxious, projecting fear onto the future because of things that happened in the past, mm-hmm. or we're going towards fantasy. Oh, it'll be fine. You know, um, just because Mario doesn't want to marry me and it happened in my past, there's no problem that could happen here. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there is a problem that could have happened you know, something Mm -hmm. important for me to look at. So when we talk about that, I think of it being like the middle path, Mm -hmm. really seeing reality for what it is. This isn't my past. He's not my ex. I'm not in the same exact situation. Um, In fact, when I felt into the moment in a present-based way, it was the best relationship I'd ever had. He was kind. He was loving. um, He was very trustworthy. His word felt like it had integrity. Um, And I didn't fall into a fantasy that either we didn't have to get married because I wouldn't mind, because I did mind, and I would Mm -hmm. mind. It would have built up as a resentment for me, for better or for Mm -hmm. worse. I don't know that Vanessa of today would have agreed with Vanessa of yesterday, but that was what was true. Um, Or that there wasn't some risk in kind of giving someone an ultimatum which is ultimately Mm -hmm. what I did. So it takes a lot of capacity for your nervous system, for your being, for your mind to meet life as it is. That's what it means to be present without Mm -hmm. any filters. So I don't think it's quite an easy thing. It's a culmination of multiple things in my experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, Meditation, psychology, therapy, parts work all helped me. Um, Mm -hmm. courage, uh, retraining my nervous system. Yeah. What about, um, I know we wanted to talk about microdosing, which leads me to, because we talk so much about integration, right? And Mm -hmm. these are all parts of integration. These are all, especially in this time now, like people are the buzzword microdosing, right? People are talking about psychedelics so much. And when I began my microdose journey, it was on the heels of our work together where I had done so much integration work, really tried to see myself for what I am and who I am and, and love all the parts of myself. Because also something that we didn't quite completely discuss is like the parts, it's not just all the careers you've had. It's not just all the mistakes. It's actually all of who you are all the time in the present, right? And Mm -hmm. I've been talking about this. I was sharing this in my stories yesterday. That messy, that discomfort, that what we label as self-sabotage, which is actually self-protection, so your protection mechanisms, really loving and embracing all those parts of yourself and just moving forward in life with all of them right? And not perceiving them as baggage or trying to cut them off before you move forward. And so I think there's so much conversation around psychedelics and microdosing that it's going to be the cure, the magic bullet. But in fact, it's just one of the tools that is, I do believe that it's like a cheat code, right? It can get you somewhere really fast, Mm -hmm. but also to integrate that learning it's really essential to work with a therapist, a coach, a psychologist, you know, Reiki, meditation, Mm -hmm. yoga, all these different practices to really embody that learning and integrate it. So I know that you microdose and you've Mm -hmm. experienced psychedelics. What is your, what has been your experience and how do you do it? So psychedelics at large, I have experience with, and not not as much as some other people, but I will share what mine is because I do find them to be very interesting. When I was young, I was really a purist. All I wanted to do was meditate. It's like, this is how the Buddhists did it. They just meditated. They achieved enlightenment. Let's do it the hard way, okay? Then I got older and I realized, you know, healing is much more difficult than I had ever understood, especially if you've had difficult trauma in your life. And I realized, like, it's slow. It can be very painful. So I started to get more curious about 
any shortcut that I thought was still in alignment, you know, mm-hmm. anything that can just get you a little bit of a quantum leap ahead. Mm-hmm. So I have done some macro psychedelics and I've done micro psychedelics and really for different reasons. What I find most interesting personally about it all is I really do experience that psychedelics can turn off the default mode network in your brain. Now, mm-hmm. specifically, I'm speaking about psilocybin. Really, that's where my experience lies. So when I've been on larger doses of psilocybin, what was interesting was one of the things I kind of set as a personal intention, right? A reason why I was doing it was I was curious about my essential self. Like we started the conversation with earlier, like, who would I be? Is is who I am today still just a guarded version of myself? Am I still uh, taught? That's eternal question. Right? <laughs> right? Like, am I? Like, am I really who I am? <laughs> yeah, really- because, <laughs> because one important fundamental truth is we are not all the same and we are not all meant to be the same. And I don't just mean like careers and marriage or kids and who wants and who doesn't. I mean, very specifically, we have different intuitions. We have different aptitudes. We have different ways of interacting and processing reality. Mm-hmm. So for me, for example, I'm a, I'm a counselor. I've studied psychology. I've worked with people 25 years, right? I'm a sensitive woman, but I am not the kind of heart opening woman who cries when people share I am not touchy-feely with my female friends. I'm not huggy-kissy. So I used to look around and think, am I broken? Like, is this a defense mechanism? Is my heart shut? Because going to a school with a bunch of psychotherapists for grad school, you can imagine a lot of them are those like big a lot of labeling going around too, I'm sure. Oh, for sure. For sure. Because when the vast majority of people kind of operate the same way, becomes as if there's a norm and you're outside the norm Mm -hmm. and they're looking at me like I have some kind of a deficiency. I mean, you know, bless their hearts. Right. But so I was like, is my heart shut down or is this who Mm -hmm. I am? And what I discovered, so when you, when I did psilocybin in larger doses, you really do experience a suspension of that default mode network, which if you are listening and you don't know what that is, just simply put, the kind of looping narratives and stories and the looping tendency to keep self-analyzing your every moment, Mm -hmm. that kind of self-critical or self-analytical voice gets suspended. You're just existing and being present. What I found was that's exactly who I am. I'm just not a super emotive, emotional, heart-open being. In fact, my dominant chakras are my throat, my solar plexus. It's really not, and my heart third, right? So one thing I think psilocybin can be really interesting for is just getting a taste of who you can be beyond your habitual looping thought patterns that can be Mm -hmm. so painful. When I did microdosing, my intention was actually to see if I could get traction on migraines that I was having at the time. And interestingly enough, I started microdosing right around uh, when the pandemic began. So I was like in quarantine, microdosing. It was clearly a very stressful time on the planet. And I was chilling the whole time I was microdosing. And really, when you microdose, I'm sure Danielle's heard this and you've all heard this, but you are not taking a dose where you are having an experience. You're not in an altered state. But I took a microdose. I took it with Paul Stamets stack of mushrooms. And um, I experienced just more presence, more ease, more connection with the universe, you know, with the world around me, with others. And even more interestingly, I stopped it because it wasn't really helping my migraines and I didn't really feel I needed it. But not long after, my neurologist gave me like a very low dose antidepressant to take for my migraines. Um, Helped me sleep like a baby. Didn't really help my migraines either, so I didn't stay on it. But I didn't notice the same benefits as I had with microdosing, which I find fascinating. Now, that might be personal for my chemistry, and I wasn't really experiencing depression. So, you know, nobody listened to me, you know, follow your own body. But I did think it was distinctly interesting that 
microdosing seemed to open up just a layer of beauty and a, a new relationship with this subtle layer of beauty within and without you that was really beneficial. Yeah. And I also think what's really interesting when you talk about the default mode, it's not just in the, the ruminating thought patterns and this inner language and the inner talk. It's also in what I find and what I've heard a lot of people say, it's like they're responses to things and what they choose to do their their activities their daily habits like my friend was like I don't know I suddenly just shut my computer and went outside and garden for four hours and like that's been on my to-do list for six months to like weed weed the garden and plant the trees and do the things and so it's it also you know beyond the the inner dialogue it also helps you take impulsive action in the areas in which you've been resisting or kind of like ignoring, which I feel like a lot of depression and anxiety comes from is from that place of feeling stuck or overwhelmed with the things that you'd like to do, but you are overwhelmed and you feel like you can't do um, for Mm -hmm. one reason or another, which is the inner dialogue. So it kind Mm -hmm. of shuts down that dialogue and allows you to just go whoop and like take immediate action without Mm -hmm hesitation, which is amazing, which is that freeze response, you know? Yeah. I mean, my experience, of course, depression and anxiety can be quite complex, right? It can be physiological alone. Um, Oftentimes there's a correlation to some kind of adverse childhood experience or even to a chronic illness or something Mm -hmm. that is disrupting your physiology or dysregulating it. Uh, So it can be really complex, certainly, But the way that I see what you're sharing, and that's not something I've witnessed quite firsthand personally, is that the default mode network, and we're oversimplifying neurologically, but it's just one way to describe this part. It's essentially a filtering mechanism. So you're taking in reality. And the way the brain works is you take in reality at a subconscious level because you're absorbing literally billions of bits of data per second from the world around you. So you're taking in all of this data, but then you're always filtering it through your brain. And as it gets filtered through your brain, it gets filtered through past because Mm -hmm. the brain is saying like, is this, yeah, is this familiar? Is this safe? Is this dangerous? Is this good? Is this bad? Does this get me what I want? Doesn't this get me what I want? Right. And so it's very, very habitual. If you think about um, psychological healing or you think about spiritual awakening, part of what we're aiming for is a life beyond our past, Mm. right? A life that is not subject chronically to Mm -hmm. um, the past and the fear and the limitations and the wounds that it created within us. So I think as you can get out of this particular mechanism within the brain, which psychedelics seems to support for people, you don't have to keep filtering your choices through that same old groove. So Mm -hmm. obviously I don't know your friend, so I'm making up an example, but let's say that your friend believed that she had to be productive to be a good person. So every time she goes to make a decision, then the data is getting filtered through, but are you being productive? Is this really a good person? You know, maybe Mm. like we said earlier, Danielle, what if you believe your role in life is to serve people? It's like, Mm. well, is this serving people? Is this helping anyone? And it keeps filtering through, which makes it really hard to choose new behaviors Mm -hmm. because the logic is so ingrained that sometimes before the choice even rises up into our conscious mind, we already are acting out the same habitual way of being over and over again. Mm Mm-hmm. So good. That's so relatable. Exactly what you said, even as a mom, like that's oftentimes the filter that, and I speak for myself, but other moms have shared this very same sentiment with me over and over and over. It's Mm -hmm. like when you're with your child, your mind is racing about all the other things that you could be doing. And it's not always just housework. It's the emails, it's the phone calls, it's the texts, it's the productive things that you're supposed to be doing to be a productive member of society. I don't know, whatever it is, right? Whatever filters and context we have around it, 
but it makes it really hard to just be present with your child because it doesn't yeah. feel like the thing you're supposed to be doing because mm-hmm. we've built 30 plus years before we had our child, you know, of identity around quite different behaviors than playing with dolls. (laughs) Well, I think the research says, I'm going to misquote this slightly, but the research says that we are in our default mode network. It's something like 80 to 90. I'm saying 80 conservatively. So I think Mm -hmm. it's closer to 90% of the time. So that means your brain is racing on, on usually repetitive looping thoughts. That's the first thing you realize when you sit in silent meditation is how much you're repeating your thoughts. Um, most of the time. The other thing is, you know, when you look anthropologically, this is what one of my teachers taught me anyway, I'm not an anthropologist, but he was, he said that our human bodies have not actually changed that much. We really haven't evolved that much since we were, let's say, hunters and gatherers. Okay. But they used to work like 12 to 20 hours a week. And then the rest of the time was play, was relaxation, was being around the fire together, was sitting out in nature. We also were in communities, you know, tribal units where mothers had time by themselves because the kids were playing together or were being taken care of another person by another person. I mean, one of my teachers who her name was Saban Fusome and she was from West Africa. I mean, she, I met her, I don't know. 15 years ago or something. And she was in her maybe forties. Okay. So we're not talking that long ago. She said when she grew up, she didn't even know who her biological mother was till she was eight. Wow. That's how much the tribe helped. Wow. Yeah. So my child doesn't know who I am because there's so many other moms. (laughs) So many other moms. And there was this like big grand reveal ceremony where she met her mother. She said she was disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she oh wasn't God, her favorite. So funny. But, and I'm not saying that we can go back to that or we should go uh-huh. back to that. But just to say that, you know, for a mother to be putting in the number of dedicated hours that they're often putting into their child, depending on the age of the child and the stage, and then potentially working, and it could be a job that requires quite a little bit of bandwidth, and then potentially also taking care of a house, potentially taking care of a sick parent or, you know, a husband, you know, there's, there's so much Mm -hmm. it's overwhelming. And I Mm -hmm. don't think we realize just how much of modern life is overwhelming. Even if someone's listening and they have kind of a standard corporate job, the standard corporate job in New York, people are working 60 hours a week. So if you mm-hmm. think about your body having originally been designed to work like 12 to 20 and then kind of like sit around, no stimulation, mm-hmm. out in nature and sleep a lot. And you think about what well, our lives job, are like now. The job was, was um, physical too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It wasn't mental, emotional bandwidth. And not the same unless you were a shaman and then it was a different category, right? So this is all to say that we face a lot of stressors now that we don't realize. We we probably can't conceptualize of just how overwhelmed our nervous systems are, just how overwhelmed our bodies are, how often we're being kicked into defensive physiology, into mm-hmm. survival mode, into past-based thinking, because that's all survival mode does is mm-hmm. use the past to determine the present and then therefore project into the future. Um, but for most people, it's chronic. So without something, you know, whatever your path is, yoga, meditation, psychedelics, psychology, um, energy work, you know, and, and really from my experience, you're combining them, right? Mm-hmm. More often than not, you're combining them. But you need a path just to overcome the intensity of our daily lives these days. Never mind, it was never um, considered to be quite an easy thing to awaken from reality. Yeah. Can we talk about meditation for a minute? Because I feel like we had this, it was probably five to seven, eight years ago, we had this kind of boom in meditation when the meditation apps came out and it was classes and um, 
workshops and centers were opening around the country and there was a big boom in meditation. Science was revealing that it was necessary and effective. And, you know, and since then, the hype kind of went away, I feel like, but the results don't go away. But since Mm -hmm. the hype has gone away, what is it that we can really remember about that hype and what has actually stayed, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I know for me, that's when I first started meditating when you were leading workshops through Modern Ohm. Um, And before my cat of space here in Miami, and now it's it's still a really amazing community that exists, modern home. Um, but you know, I still meditate. My meditation looks different often. Sometimes it's five minutes under running water. Sometimes it's sitting in a chair and sometimes it's sitting on the floor. Sometimes it's five to eight minutes and sometimes it's 30 to 40. But, um, for people who don't have a meditation practice, And even going back to like what I experienced, I've actually had such radical experiences meditating. What is that? You know, what Mm -hmm. is the power of meditation? And what did I experience in that first time? I feel like I had my Kundalini rising. Kundalini rising. Well, I mean, it's kind of a big question. We can go into a lot of different directions. You know, what kind of meditation you use and how effective it is for you, what I've seen over the years, in my opinion, is that it it varies on what your goals are and it varies on what your physiology is, your temperament is. You know, it's almost like different medicine for different people at different times. That's how mm-hmm. I see it personally. Yeah, because I and I want to say for everybody out there listening, like if you've gone through certain kinds of trauma, sitting still and quiet is actually quite a traumatic experience, right? Yeah. It can be very difficult. And there have been times where, for example, they've done some research where people go to these 10-day silent Vipassana retreats, and if they have a history of trauma, and they're not very long-term meditators, um, it can really unravel them more than it can help them. And when I first started meditating regularly, I was about 28. Eight, 27, something like that. And, um, and I certainly experienced that. I started off with a kind of emptiness meditation. It was a Shambhala Buddhist style, very similar to Zen. And I was doing it for 45 minutes a day. I didn't have a teacher really that I was regularly in contact with. And what it felt to me was like I was unraveling. And even though if you're doing this on a spiritual path, as I said earlier, disidentifying is part of the journey, but it was like, I didn't have any ground to stand on. And Mm -hmm. that in and of itself can become scary and therefore loop you back into a trauma pattern. Mm -hmm. So different medicine for different people at different times. I quite like people to seek out communities or teachers or support to design their meditation journey or to have someone to speak with about it. Now, if you're doing it just for stress relief, you're wonderful. 10 to 15 minutes uh, listening to one of those apps, it can be really helpful. I have clients who go through very difficult times. They listen on their headset while they're falling asleep and it helps them sleep. That's great. If you're doing spirituality for some level of healing, for some level of spiritual awakening, then it's a much different path. You're not going to get that from five to 10 minutes a day listening mm-hmm. to a guided meditation. You need something very different. Um, and I could say a lot about what's different. Now, how people look at meditation varies across traditions. One of the things I get from meditation is that when I'm really in my meditation, right, when I've really dropped in, your brain waves change. To me, it's palpable at this point your state shifts, you feel different in your body and your being. It's, it's, it's like you're experiencing yourself beyond your past. So as I said before, that's something we're looking for in healing. Who can I be beyond my past? And when you're meditating, you can experience that. Now, what you described about Kundalini rising, it can be really in depth and they're you know, I, there could be so much to say about it, but we can just think quite simply that through the yogic perspective, we have a subtle energy body. And when we're using meditation practices, it's in part to cultivate 
this subtle energy body and to get energy flow to go up what's called the central channel or shashumna um, to reach these higher chakras in the in the head and and above and so the ultimate goal of spiritual awakening in the yogic tradition amongst others is to open up that energy flow, which gets blocked by different traumas in life, mm-hmm. so that it's moving freely through your central channel, so that all of the chakras can be connected and aligned and kind of flowing in a toric field, which mm-hmm. is when we're in most harmony. People like yourself, Daniel, can have that, but not necessarily sustain it. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot we could say about that. Um, but it is a beautiful experience. I've had that happen. I mean, it's kind of orgasmic. It's it's really powerful. And you're not contriving it. No. And it almost feels like you're on a psychedelic because you feel you don't you you feel this when you drop into that thetic state of meditation, like you were describing as well, where you suddenly don't it's like you have no edges and yeah. you feel the energy beyond you, like beyond just like your identity of past and future, but like you just feel kind of omnipresent. I feel like that was like the first tap in. And then this experience of Kundalini rising was like this whirring, like a circular, like like a vibrational moving upward. And I could feel my body moving, but not very much. I'm sure externally it didn't look like I was moving at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, it was a wild sensation. I mean, it was my like, body it, did you move. You can't just, you did it? Yeah, I'm sure it did. people do move. I've seen yeah. people moving up. People the shake. I mean, yeah. the thing is that it is uncontrived and it's happening to you. That's what makes it so fascinating and so believable when you're the person having the experience. Mm. And just to say, my tendency is to move towards what's called somatic meditation. It's not the only thing I do. I've tried many different styles, but... When you practice somatic in, in meditation, one of the words people can look up if they're curious is interoception. You develop more capacity to sense the interior of your being. So if you're someone, just to circle back, who feels really fragmented or disintegrated, or you feel empty or not whole or not complete or not real, and these are all ways people describe feeling. Um, somatic meditation, as you learn to attune to the inside of your body mm-hmm. and you start to see, because so much of life, especially with trauma, makes you look outwards, not inwards. Our attention gets fixated vigilantly to the ecosystem to make sure we're safe. So part of the recovery of our wholeness is learning to bring our attention and all of the circuitry back inward. So we can sense ourselves, our intuition, our true desires. So somatic meditation is a tool that helps you establish that, regain that. And what I found when I was beginning my somatic meditation journey was it was the first time I started to feel whole, like you started the conversation with. Mm-hmm. Full circle moment right here. Totally. What is, um, what is somatic meditation? What does that mean? So when you say somatic, it means body-based. You could say embodied meditation. There are so many different practices. A lot of people will think of a guided meditation. They can be somatic, but sometimes they're just in the mind, like picture you're in a field, picture you know, you're floating in water. You could have meditation that's just stillness meditation where you don't move. You try not to think. You let your thoughts float away and you just sit. And that's another style of meditation. These, by the way, all have their purpose. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it's used, you know, we use all of them. Somatic is like bringing your attention inward to the subtle energy that is flowing through your body. And there's many different types and styles. Um, in, In yogic practices, they're very common. I like tantric yoga quite a bit, which is not the sex uh, understanding people think of with tantra. Just it's a... It's a way of cultivating your subtle energy body so you can feel at one mm-hmm. and so you can feel whole and present. So yeah, somatic embracing and, the dark and the light energies that coexist within us, right? Well, in, and embracing, yes, of course, that is part of it. It's from, from the most simple perspective, it's embracing that the divine is everywhere. 
that it's mm-hmm. not separated. It's not like we have to get to heaven. It's not like we have to get off this planet. It's not mm-hmm. like, you know, we have heaven to trip out here. all the time. Yeah. It's all right here, even in the pain, even in the muck. That's why you say the dark and the light. That's really the essence of Tantra. Mm-hmm. Like our life is our practice. Our emotions are our practice. Everything leads us home and the divine is left out of nothing. So beautiful. Thank you. What a full circle conversation. All I the know. places we went to. <laughs> I know. I love how it came back to wholeness. It always does with you, especially. Yeah. Um, which is why I just, it's such a pleasure always sharing space and talking to you. So thank you. Um, I've been asking everybody, what does rebellious reinvention mean to you? I guess I would say that it's the courage and willingness to build the capacity to keep being true to yourself. You know, we mm-hmm. have ideas that we're static, like who I am yeah. is who I will be. And our ego feels really invested in consistency and predictability. But we're not quite like that. Not if we're evolving. We're like water in a stream. Sometimes we love someone and then we don't. Sometimes we commit to a partner and then it's no longer a fit or our job is no longer a fit. Like you, I've had multiple careers and it's scary. I spend a lot of money on grad school and then I don't want to be an acupuncturist anymore. Like, (laughs) holy cow, that is not great. Um, But it's having the courage to keep listening to yourself, listening Mm -hmm. inward, trusting what's arising and then building the capacity in your nervous system and your mind and your courage to keep being true to that, even when it's scary and even when the outside world doesn't agree with you. Beautifully said. I love that. I love your interpretation. Thank you. Where Thank can every you. you're welcome. Where can everybody find you? What are your My website things? is my name. So it's vanessascato.com. And you can sign up there for my newsletter. I'm not highly active, but there is a beautiful gift on um, how to be more self-loving and why you're still struggling with self-love, if that's a thing for you. Also, I'm on Instagram, at Vanessa Scotto. So everything is my name, S-C-O-T-T-O, quite easy to find me. And I don't podcast any longer, but I have like a hundred hours worth of me to listen to at the Bliss and Grit podcast. It's Bliss and Grit. And it's timeless. It is timeless, you guys. So go ahead and give that a listen. Thank you so much for your time, Vanessa. I really appreciate it. Oh my gosh, such a pleasure. Yeah, I love you so much. Mario and I just said like, wow, we know her so long. What a treat to be able to be here together in our evolving journeys because our lives both look so different. So So I wish you many, many blessings on your podcast. And thank you for all the listeners. It's been an honor to be here with you all. Thank you, Vanessa. Every week we have a reoccurring segment and I share my favorite things, tangible products to use, things to walk away with above and beyond the inspiration of these conversations. It's called My Favorite Things. Think, read, shop, do, or grab. In this week's think piece, my rebellious perspective. What if we were meant to love it all? The messy, the joy, the pain, and the what is. As a recovering perfectionist, I have learned that there will never be a perfect anything, a perfect time to step into the next project, career, or idea, that life will not be less complicated or slow down. And what I was really doing was telling myself I am not enough, not yet. As I learned to embrace exactly who I am in the now, I began to love all the parts of myself, even the bruises, the messy, the not quite refined aspects of myself. I began to move fully and presently into the space of fierce peace and adoration towards myself, radiating that love all around me, finding more support, more places to move into, and even more in my career. It's not less messy, nor does it ever feel that way, but it's perfectly imperfect. It is me, my way. May you begin to accept and love yourself for who you are and what you have been through, and may you go through it fiercely. My next piece is Read, All for Love, The Transformative Power of Holding Space by Matt Kahn, one of Vanessa's favorite mentors and personal friends. In this book, you will learn to awaken your inner healer, transform conflict, and embrace our ever-changing world with confidence and compassion. Best-selling author Matt Kahn invites us to see our differences as golden opportunities to explore the depth of our interconnectedness. 
offering wise insights and tangible tools, Matt teaches us how to remain aligned with our highest truths and values while we hold space for the experiences of ourselves and others. Throughout this book, Matt shares 10 essential principles, mercy, worthiness, bravery, and more that help us accept access the highest and most loving qualities within ourselves and those around us. Each chapter contains personal stories, real world applications, guiding us to reach into our hearts and give one another the respect, validation, and encouragement needed to make it through the evolutionary shifts before us, to shift into greater unity and greater love. And the last thing, do. Go head on over to Bliss and Grit Podcast to listen to Vanessa and her co-host, Brooke Thomas, where they're having timeless conversations about spiritual modern world, what it even means, and what is real evolution of our lives. Learn how they embrace everything, all the beauty and all the crazy and the messes, the bliss and grit that is the human life. They explore questions and answers each week. Go check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you like, subscribe, and tag us on Instagram.